you know, like it's still just uh, horse and buggy days, really, with the solar. It's still, you know, it's Nokia phone days rather than, um, you know, smartphone era. So there's a whole lot of technology development still to come Mm -hmm. with solar. Hi, I'm Kaya Taylor, and this is Rewired, a show exploring the future of energy in Australia from ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Today on the show, an episode that I'm very excited about, we're speaking with Martin Green, arguably the biggest name in solar. Martin is a professor at the University of New South Wales and director of the Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics. He's been working in solar research for almost 50 years, and the cells he developed can be found in the majority of solar panels in the world today. It's because of Martin's work that solar became efficient enough to install on rooftops. And that work started back in the 70s, when solar was still a bit of a moonshot. Yes, I um, was lucky enough to get a scholarship to study my PhD in Canada. And um, the topic I was working on turned out to be very relevant to solar. So some of the ideas that I was working on there are now sort of finding their way into commercial cells. But uh, that really, um, when I landed back in Australia, it was just after the um, oil embargoes of the early 70s, and uh, that made solar a very hot topic. So the US started a big program in solar. Project Independence was the the overarching project, and um, solar was one of the strands of it. And uh, when Jimmy Carter got into power, he was very interested in solar, so the program uh, was very well supported financially. And I guess that encouraged other countries around the world to um, to follow suit. So solar through the 70s was a very, very hot topic area and um, some very strong groups internationally involved. And what was it that you studied first? Was there a, a specific topic? Was it making solar cheaper or was it... Where, where did it start? What was the first thing you kind of studied in the solar space? Yeah, I, I got very interested in microelectronics when I was an undergraduate and... Um, I guess uh, as I matured, I thought of, you know, it was very exciting in microelectronics back then. The, you know, 10 transistors on a chip was making headlines and all that kind of stuff. So a very exciting area to be uh, involved in. And uh, But I got just a bit disillusioned because the only use I saw for microelectronics was better TV sets and that kind of thing, sort of missing out on the computer yeah. re- and information revolution entirely. So I just was looking for something that I could do with a bit more social impact. And uh, with the oil embargoes, you know, suddenly solar was um, a hot topic and uh, the expertise I developed in microelectronics was entirely relevant to it. Yeah, my PhD thesis was looking at applications of a particular structure that might have been of interest for microelectronics, but I realised it would be very um, useful for solar. So that started me off on sort of a unique technology to apply to solar that no one else was really looking at. So that's one of the reasons we've done so well. We've come at it from a different angle from um, most of the international groups um, that have been working in the area. What was the different angle? What was the norm at that point to look at it from? The solar cell works by absorbing uh, photons from sunlight. Mm-hmm. They get excited within the, within the silicon material, but you have to have, do something to get them all going off in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And the standard way of doing that was um, making something into the silicon material called a PN junction, mm-hmm. which is just a positive-negative junction. So um, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that at the time. I just called it the PN junction, not being aware of where the terminology arose from. But the positive bit 
um, turns positive when you just shine sunlight on it, the negative bit turns negative. But these electrons that are excited within the silicon, the PN junction makes them, it's, got, it's an asymmetrical structure. So the electrons go off in one direction and uh, you get this unidirectional flow. So my work was investigating an alternative structure that would also give you that directionality. Okay. And uh, no one else was working on this particular approach at the time. So it was, um, and, and uh, it started getting very good results. So and NASA had a program to improve the performance of silicon cells. Mm-hmm. And they identified, you know, the, the power output from the cell is the product of the current it gives, which is all these electrons generated by the photons going off in the same direction and then you can only do that up to a certain voltage mm-hmm. so the, the the voltage output from the cell is the other important parameter so nasa realized to improve silicon cell efficiency they had to improve the voltage so they had a program aiming to do that and the structure i was working on it was quite difficult to make into a cell at that stage and at unsw when i joined we didn't have the infrastructure there to be um you know competitive in making full cells but making a device you could measure the voltage on was really very simple so we um started getting much higher voltages than anyone else in the world which sort of brought us to international attention and helped us getting local helped us with getting local and some international funding and um that's where the, the team started When Martin started his research back in the 70s, solar was mostly isolated to the space race. It was a great way to power satellites, but back on Earth, it wasn't efficient enough to be used for powering a home. Yeah, so the the first uh, efficient silicon solar cell was made in 1954. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, people got very excited, a new way of generating energy and so, so on. But it was just too expensive to make them then because the semiconductor industry was very tiny and the the wafers that were being made for not even microelectronics and it was just for uh, diodes and single components rather than integrated components. You know, very small wafers and the cost was just horrendous. But in 1958, a bit of an experiment, someone convinced the powers that be to uh, put a solar panel onto Vanguard 1, which was one of the early US satellites to go up. And it worked beautifully. In fact, too well, they forgot to put an off switch on there. And this solar panel was powering this little beeper <laughs> that sort of clogged up the airwaves for, um, you know, 10 years or something like that till the solar panel. Well, no, they, they just had, well, in those days, you know, probably would have been difficult to, <laughs> to try and catch it or anything. So they um, just let it beep away for the 10 years till the, <laughs> you know, the, it's, a, there's, um, uh, it's a tougher environment in space for the solar cells because uh, the high energy particles there degrade the cells. So they only last about 10 years in space. Yeah. But here terrestrially, there's no, nothing really that wears out within the cell itself. It's mm-hmm. just the packaging and things like that that yeah. um, sort of gives out eventually. As Martin mentioned, the oil embargoes in the 70s forced the US to explore other forms of energy, and solar became a key research focus. That desire to create clean energy from sunlight eventually made its way to Australia. And um, there's quite a lot of funding during the Carter era. In fact, the, you know, just in dollars of the day, the the dollars they're going in then are higher than the US, larger than the US program now, despite all the inflation that's gone on. So it was quite a substantial program and had a lot of US, a lot of the good US universities and so on involved. So, uh, you know, a very competitive environment. So us being able to get ahead in this one parameter was something quite notable, particularly as we didn't have the same infrastructure that uh, many of the overseas teams we were competing against did. I'm guessing the extent to local funding in the same way as the funding that was available in the US. 
Yeah, yeah. So we, we followed suit and we set up um, you know, National Energy Research and Development Council and yeah. there was these funding schemes specifically for solar that um, you know, allowed us to uh, set up some of the, our laboratory, actually. So, you know, buying equipment was the, the main difficulty. Um, so we, we always, um, we got eventually into the a mode of buying secondhand equipment from the microelectronics industry in the US and we had a team that could uh, recommission it and, you know, so we had some quite skilled technical people with a lot of experience there and that's turned out to be very important for the industry because they were able to transfer those skills to setting up the industry in China very cheaply and, um, you know, that's why we have cheap solar cells now. I mean, is it right to say that there was some quiet periods, though, in terms of not necessarily, I know the research and the innovation has been going on since the 70s, but were there periods where maybe it lagged a bit or it kind of slowed down, perhaps with funding or whichever? So Yeah, the, the 80s was a very quiet period because, yeah. of course, Ronald Reagan wasn't too impressed with... Project <laughs> independence, got it. <laughs> so all the all these top US researchers that had been working on solar yeah. had, to, had to divert to working on Star Wars type wow. applications, which started getting the big funding <laughs> when Reagan was in. So, um, you know, many of our competitors sort of fell or got out of the area but we were um, one group that survived through the 70s right through to the 90s Uh, so with uh, Chernobyl um, in 1986 if I remember correctly um, there was a renewal of interest particularly in Europe uh, who was on (laughs) on top of it all literally Um, so uh, that re-sparked programs and things then but there was this slack period from probably 1982 to 1986, where there's very um, little funding, particularly in the US and the academics there are very heavily dependent upon, um, you know, getting contracts to uh, to maintain their research activities. We were very lucky in that we um, were able to tap into sort of centres of excellence type schemes um, that the Australian Research Council were offering because, um, you know, we from 1983, we set our first world record and... Um, uh, with the solar cells um, as part of this US program uh, all the subcontractors under that program had any result that they claimed mm-hmm. had to be independently measured at one of the US test labs to show that you know they, they had the story straight in terms of how much improvement they were able to show. So that became standard in the industry was to have results independently verified. Sure. So there's no argument over who's doing the best. Yeah. So from 1983 you know we threw out the yeah, you know, the 80s and 90s, well up to 2014, we held the world record um, for most of that period, mm-hmm. apart from a six-month period. But yeah. and that was uh, something that couldn't be disputed. So we'd get very good reviews, particularly from overseas groups who, yeah. who could say, you know, these guys are leading the world, and that helped with uh, getting sort of centre of excellence type funding. So that allowed us to keep the group together without having to uh, uh, annually apply for grants and (laughs) come up with good ideas every couple of years. Martin and his team at the University of New South Wales developed a new kind of solar cell called PERC, which stands for Passivated Emitter and Rear Cell. And it's this PERC cell which changed solar. By the early 2000s, we were starting to see solar installed on rooftops across Australia. And now more than 3 million homes have solar. While it used to be quite expensive, over the past decade, the cost equation has dramatically changed. In fact, in 2020, the International Energy Agency found that solar is the cheapest electricity in history. And these falling prices are largely because of the impact Martin's students have had on the industry. 
So um, one of my PhD students, uh, Dr. Zhengrong Shi, who is an Australian citizen, but he became um, fired with the ambition of setting up a manufacturing plant somewhere, and and China was one location that he, you know, he felt comfortable in. Um, so he he um, tried to raise funds to set up manufacturing in China, and sort of hawked his story around a few governments and municipalities and so on. But eventually the Wuxi government, he found someone in there that mm-hmm. led a bit of an ear and they twisted the arms of some white goods companies and that kind of thing in the area that were making a bit of money and got them to kick in a million US each. And uh, so Zhengrong had a budget of six million to set up the first commercial manufacturing line for solar in China. So a lot of our team, some of them left us and went with him and others just helped him, you know, part time to um, to get that up and make it successful. Mm-hmm. And that was a really, I think that was the trigger that has led us to the cheap solar because within a couple of years, he, he started um, making good product and because our mob were helping him and we held the record for silicon cell efficiency for 30 of the last mm-hmm. 38 years. So... We didn't feel anyone had the edge on us in technology. Yeah. All these solar companies were private companies because the, the Chinese government thought solar was going to be too expensive and they were putting all their resources into wind energy then. So these were all just private companies started on a, you know, shoestring, uh, you know, wish and a prayer sort of companies, you know, most, mostly by people that were driven by the social aspects of, of what solar could offer, mm-hmm. uh, like Zhengrong was. And um, the float uh, in 2005, first by a private Chinese company, and turned out to be the largest technology float in the world of 2005. So he raised 400 million, and he only um, there was only a small part of the company on offer. So he still had a major part of the company. So he became an overnight billionaire, the first solar billionaire. Yeah. That was 2005, but. In the next three years, um, so that triggered a whole avalanche. Um, you know, the U.S. investment banks like Goldman Sachs made at least two hundred million on the on the exercise, and so they were looking for other Chinese companies they could pass off as SunTech Mark II. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was plenty of potential SunTech Marks IIs in China. There were, there was two, two companies that were assembling assembling uh, solar cells into modules, which is quite low technology work, but they were able to pass themselves off as something equivalent to what Zhengrong was doing. So they were the next two to float because they already had the company set up and everything. So they were started by guys who were just interested in the social aspects of solar and doing something uh, useful. So that was um, Trina and Canadian Solar, who are now two of the big players in the field. Yeah. Yeah. So they, but they just started little tin pot companies. But because Zhengrong had done so well, everyone was interested in them, and they, they got the finance to allow them to um, build all the manufacturing lines to start making the cells. But unlike Zhengrong, who had to set up on a shoestring and use secondhand equipment, all that kind of stuff, yeah. they were able to afford the best German equipment and everything. Yeah. I'd love to know now for you, what are the challenges that still remain? What is the, you know, what are the biggest challenges? that we need to overcome in order to continue this speed and and getting to the goal, whether it is the social impact causes that you mentioned before or the broader kind of decarbonisation goal? What are the challenges? Yeah, yeah. well, the the industry um, has a certain momentum now, so you don't probably have to do anything more. Like as the International Energy Agency said, solar is now the cheapest way of generating electricity. Like even, even, yeah, even when you count count storage and the industry is growing bigger as, as um, 
like I guess a lot of uh, greenhouse mitigation strategies are based around solar now. So you'll find most of the recent ones, like the one by the International Energy Agency, has solar as the dominant source of primary energy after 2040, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a growing demand for solar as a result of that, and that'll just lower the costs automatically as people scale up and get better at doing it and cut corners here and there. Mm-hmm. But you can make another dramatic improvement in costs if you develop what's called a tandem solar cell, where you stack solar cells made by different from different materials on top of one another. So they're already used in spacecraft. So um, in space now, the standard cell has three cells stacked on top of each other. And we, we hold the world record for um, at UNSW for um, converting sunlight to electricity, and we used a four-cell stack there. So the more you can stack, the higher the efficiency goes. So you can at least double the um, efficiency over that of a, of a single silicon cell by stacking, you know, three or four cells on top of it. You can manipulate the properties of silicon. So we tried that as our first priority, as our first approach, because um, silicon is such an ideal material, like it's abundant and it's non-toxic and it's stable and, uh, you know, you can make good cells from it. So we tried to find ways of manipulating the properties of silicon, but that didn't pan out too well. So now we're trying to find an alternative material that has all those desirable properties of silicon, you know, um, because the industry is going to be very big. So you're going to need something that's abundant and preferably you wouldn't be deploying toxic material around the countryside in the volume that we're going to need to mitigate global warming. Arena has a new focus on ultra-low-cost solar, with the aim to reach 30% efficiency by 2030 for 30 cents per watt. It's an ambitious target considering the world record for solar efficiency is currently 25.54%, set recently by SunDrive. If you missed our conversation with SunDrive CEO Vince Allen, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. 30% efficiency by 2030 sounds ambitious, but is it actually realistic? Yeah, yeah. so the 30% efficiency is a bit of a challenge because um, you need to use a tandem cell. Well, with the bifaciality, you might just be able to get an effective 30% with a silicon panel. So they'll they'll get up to 25%, um, you know, probably this decade. Uh, um, you know, now 20% is sort of a benchmark for a commercial panel, but uh, they'll creep up to 25% over this decade. And if you get 20% boost from the back, that gives you an effective 30%. So that's one way of doing it without having to develop this tandem technology. Mm-hmm. So there's there's one candidate for the tandems that we've done uh, work on at UNSW uh, and other groups around Australia. I'm, I'm director of the Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics, and we have uh, nodes in, in Brisbane and Melbourne and Canberra. But uh, we've been working on um, a perovskite material, which is taken the world by storm. It uh, has allowed people to make very efficient cells very quickly and very easily. So there's many groups in the world that can make 23% efficient perovskite cells now, like, you know, maybe maybe uh, 50 groups for a while could do that, which was certainly not the case with silicon cells. It was quite difficult. You need a lot of infrastructure and technical expertise to get to that level of efficiency with silicon. But with the perovskites, um, you just seem to need a chemical bench and a, <laughs> the chemicals themselves are quite expensive but um, apart from that the equipment requirements are much less severe so um, you know, lots of groups are making 23 percent efficient perovskite cells you know which is sort of comparable to what silicon do 
but um, unlike silicon, they're not very stable. So silicons, there's been eight different materials that have given an efficiency over 20%, and silicon's by far the most stable of those, and perovskites are by far the least stable of those. But it has the right uh, properties, apart from stability, to be able to stack on to, onto silicon. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the grand hope. So there's many companies... Um, exploring that as a commercial option for getting to this 30% efficiency. So, you know, the, the world record's now 29.8 for a one square centimetre cell, yeah. a very, very tiny cell based on that stack. Uh, so, you know, in the lab we'll get over 30%, you know, probably in the next year or so. Okay. But um, at the module level it's a lot harder. But uh, there's been progress there as well with big, big cells. So, yeah, we'll probably see a 30% experimental module by 2030, but uh, I personally doubt that we'll see it in production because the perovskite, to me, doesn't seem to have all the properties that you'd want in a commercial technology, particularly the stability. So looking to the future now, or even the short-term future, long-term future, you can pick, do you have a vision for it? I mean, you've been doing this now since the 70s. What is your vision for the future powered by affordable, renewable energy. Can you share us a, a few thoughts on what you think that would look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's probably not going to look too much different, except that, you know, oh. we, we just have uh, our electricity will still come, but it's going to be powered by um, solar and wind. And, uh, you know, there'll be battery storage, there'll be pumped hydro storage. And um, I, think, I think you can make hydrogen cheaply, you know, like even in Australia now, uh, around midday, the electricity prices are becoming very low or even negative. So there's this opportunity to do something with that very low electricity. And Australia is probably going to reach that point ahead of many other countries. So we have this opportunity to find something to do with that very cheap electricity. And hydrogen is one of the things that can be done. And mineral processing is the other, I think. Yeah, so hydrogen also, you know, it's useful for fuel for aircraft and that kind of stuff. And uh, also for storage from seasonal type storage and pumped hydro is good for shorter term storage and batteries for, you know, daytime, daily type storage Mm -hmm. applications. So I think those will be used in conjunction with solar and wind and increased transmission like Australia. You know, there's a paper recently in Science just showing how geographical diversity, um, you know, countries with large areas, you know, Australia, Russia and all that, particularly suited to renewables because of the geographical diversity and um, we can readily, reliably supply all our electricity from renewables because of that diversity. So we talked before about how far and deep the impact Australia has had on the solar industry and specifically yourself and UNSW and a lot of the students you've had. How does it feel? I mean, going back to the start of the conversation, you talked about social impact. How does it feel to see so many of your students making big impacts across the industry? Yeah, very rewarding. So I'm I'm still very much mixed up in the research and everything. Sure. So I, <laughs> I, I find that very rewarding as well, just sort of exploring new ideas and, you know, getting insights that sort of come out yeah. of the blue. So it's still very uh, exciting to be involved in the research because, you know, like it's still just uh, horse and buggy days really with the solar. It's still, you know, it's Nokia phone days rather than, um, you know, smartphone era. So there's a whole lot of technology development still to come with mm-hmm. solar. And, uh, you know, the costs are already that, you know, cheaper than anything else. So it's going to be very low cost in the future. Mm-hmm. So, um 
one commentator described as insanely cheap electricity we're going to have from solar down the track and another one's talking about the third energy revolution because there's a hundred times more resource available from solar than than the energy that we're using now so um yeah those types of ideas are exciting and I, i think you know the pace at which people's ideas can transform is is really quite rapid. So, you know, like 10 years ago, no one would be talking about powering the world with solar by yeah. 2050. But now everyone, anyone that's putting a plan together for greenhouse mitigation is is saying that and talking about that. Yeah. Or any credible plan anyhow. So, uh, you know, the, in the 10 years, attitudes have changed enormously. So another 10 years, we'll see enormous change, uh, further change in attitudes, I think. I'm sure the people we just talked about are very inspired by you. Is there anyone in your field or people that you work with that inspires you to keep doing what you're doing, you know? Yeah, there's been many people in the industry that uh, have helped me over the years and, uh, you know, have been role models for me, I guess. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great industry to be um, involved with because, um, you know, a lot of people that join the industry say it's a lot different from other industries they've been involved with because everyone's very cooperative and we've got this common goal of making solar cheap and yeah. available and everything. So we're, we're all on the same page there. Yeah. So it gives a uniformity uh, to everyone's outlook and everyone helps each, everyone else to, um, to reach their goals. Thanks to Martin Green for joining us for this episode. Rewired is brought to you by ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, working to support Australia's energy transition. This episode was hosted by me, Kaya Taylor, with production and scripting from the team at Lawson Media. If you've enjoyed the conversation and want to learn more about the transformers working to change our energy grid, or the projects that ARENA is funding, you can find out more on our website, arena.gov.au. I'll speak to you again soon.